Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another wonderful week of The Learning Curve. As you know, we bring on wonderful guests every week to have conversations about education, K-12 and higher ed, as well as conversations about literature, philosophy, the classics, politics, and other good subjects. You're going to be joyous this week. Why? Because Kara's gone. And who do we replace her with? (laughs) Darrell Bradford. Yeah. Hear this. Yeah. We want her to hear this because when I'm often replaced and, of course, Darrell will come in and, and do a better job than I can, they'll bust on me. So this gives me an opportunity to, to get to Kara, but the can man, good to have you. Yeah, that was classic. It is delightful to be here. How are you, sir? Doing well, man. Now, the weather's better today in Charlottesville than it was for the past couple of weeks. Uh, what is it like in your part of the woods? I mean, it was frosty up here, to, to say to say the least. But we got we're cresting a little bit, so some of the trees are feeling schizophrenic. We'll see how it plays itself out. <laughs> well, someone like you who's grown up in the Northeast, say, is frosty. Uh, that means something. I still, although I've lived on the East Coast and particularly in the South for the last couple of decades, I'm still a California boy at heart. And so when I see the sun, I automatically think that it's warm. I walk outside, and the, the hawk welcomes me and says, "No." It is cold. I can't believe you went with the throwback. I haven't heard the cold called the hawk in like a minute. Well played. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this is also Black History Month. And so the ability to be able to bring back things through space and time is what we often do. (laughs) Well, look, man, so glad to have you join me today to co-host. What's your story of the week? Mine was in the New York Times because, you know, I pay my taxes in New Jersey, so I'm going to pick on the region, titled New Jersey Governor to End School Mask Mandate and Move to, air quotes, normalcy. And it's about the state's governor, Phil Murphy, setting a timetable ostensibly to lift his mask mandate first week in March, so um, almost two years after the pandemic started. And just like a couple of things, like one that's been really frustrating to me, it seems like New Jersey is a local control state with almost 600 school districts. So for the governor to lift his mask mandate actually means it's meaningless. It just means now there are 600 mandates, right, of varying varieties that change based on what school district you're in. I'm not taking a side like for or against a mandate. I'm taking a side for clarity and not acting like you're doing something that would be a significant change to K-12 education in the state, given, you know, the last two years, when what you're really doing is punting it to the locals and letting them sort of fold under the weight of it. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which is maybe hardening, is I think the last time we talked, Gerard, you know, it was right after the gubernatorial races in New Jersey and in Virginia. And there were lots of theories about why you had your outcome down there and why Murphy almost lost to a Republican challenger here in a state with a million more Democrats than Republicans and that Biden took with 60 percent of the vote. And what Virginia and New Jersey have in common is that they are in the top 10, basically, for having their schools closed the longest during the pandemic. And so maybe Democrats have started to get the message on this, like, Maybe they're like, yeah, we can't keep overriding our authority and 
making normalcy something that we experience, but it's like significantly difficult for regular folks to get on board with. And if we keep doing that, there might be an electoral price. I don't know. I hope that might be part of what the thinking is here. New Jersey is a really fascinating state because most people aren't aware of how many school systems you actually have. I mean, it's a lot and it's a heavy local control state. Same here in Virginia. I used to live in Jersey City and for a couple of years, I uh, worked with students in a weekend program for students at high schools in Newark and Jersey City. And when I think about the politics that people often look through when they're trying to figure out what to do, I think you're right. This could be an electoral look at, well, maybe we should think about it. One thing that comes to me when any governor makes a decision like this, A, have you had a conversation or your team with the local health department experts? And the reason I say that is because prior to pandemic COVID-19 and schools closing, most people could probably name his or her superintendent, his or her school board member. If you said, who's the health director? or commissioner for your city, county, or township? Most people would have no idea. Well, if you were to ask that question today, more people could answer that question now than they could even two years ago because healthcare commissioners and experts and their teams, they really have on the ground work. We see that personally here in Charlottesville, Lower Marl County with our people. So that's number one. Number two, even if you're looking at this through the lens of electoral politics, what does this say about the teachers and about the principals and the superintendents? Were they consulted? They may be mixed pro or con, you know, we'll figure that out over time, but you've got to make sure the frontline people who are delivering education to our students have got a voice in this. And then third, what do families have to think? So I'm going to follow this with much interest. And for those of you who did not read Darrell's article after the election, I think I tell you the publication, definitely one of the top 10 articles that I read about a post-election analysis and what role the pandemic, but also what role families and politics and race played in it. So thank you so much for sharing the story and also thank you for your good work. So my story is a little further north than you. It's about uh, Boston. And we know that the Pioneer Institute is the host for our show. So the Boston superintendent, Brenda Casillas, has actually announced that she's going to step down at the end of the academic year from being the superintendent of the school system. Uh, she joined in 2019, previous life. She was commissioner in Minnesota. During her tenure there, she had a lot on her plate. COVID-19 is one thing. Number two was trying to close the achievement gap in the city. And then the third was the big push dealing with funding and making sure schools have what they need. Naturally, when you hear that a superintendent in Boston is leaving, Everyone's going to ask why. Well, one of the things that she said up front when she was surrounded or accompanied with the Boston mayor, Mayor Wu, and the Boston School Committee Chair, Jerry Robinson, she said, quote, nothing is pushing me out of the door. I'm still here for five months. I'll still be here for five months and rolling up my sleeves, getting this work done each and every day. So I've always said that one of the toughest jobs in education is being a superintendent because you catch all the arrows and all the darts. And yet when praise is needed to go around equitably, uh, superintendents often don't get it. I had a chance to work for uh, Arlene Ackerman when she was superintendent of schools in D.C. and had a chance to see some of that firsthand. Also, with superintendents I work with in a couple of states. So first and foremost, let me just say thank you for your commitment to the work as a superintendent. But there are some underlying questions that 
the article didn't go into, and maybe couldn't. We know for a fact that there's a conversation right now taking place at the state level over whether or not Boston should go into receivership. And as we know that Boston, going back to the early 1990s, was one of the early school systems to be a part of the mayoral takeover model. The mayor decided through legislation, had the opportunity to appoint members to the school board. While it was so significant to a place like Boston, is that Boston actually had elected school board members going back to 1822. And so to make that shift was very monumental. But Boston was part of the conversation in New York City, where they had a mayoral takeover. You also had Detroit and other cities. So is the receivership a hint that if we take it over, we're likely going to appoint a new trustee Harbor master, commissioner, they'll come up with the appropriate term. So that could be one factor. Number two, Boston voters have decided to return the city back to a locally elected uh, school board system. Uh, that could be a factor as well. When you're an appointed city superintendent and you report directly to one person like the mayor, there's a mayor and the school committee, there's a lot of cachet that comes along with an appointment process. When it reverts back to electoral politics, you have board members either elected by ward or elected at large or a combination. It changes the dynamic of accountability. Third, when you have the possibility of a receivership, it also raises the question of, well, what does that mean for accountability? What will it mean for funding? Will it mean now that I have a school board? Yes. Possibly still a mayor, yes, but now I have a third rail, and that's the state. And there are a number of dynamics that go along with state-local relations. You know, Darrell, you're in New Jersey. New Jersey was one of the early leaders in school takeovers, going back to Jersey City in 1989. Then you had Newark. Even before then, you had challenges in Trenton. So this is going to be both a challenge for Boston, because you now have to come up and we basically have to find a new superintendent. I think the Boston superintendency is one of the most coveted positions in the country. It's a school system in a city and in a state that's considered one of the smartest in the country based upon the number of people 25 and older who have a bachelor's degree. And yet you have just untold gaps by class, by race, zip code. So for someone who's a reformer, this is an opportunity. Given the fact that they hired someone who was a former state chief, here's an opportunity either for a sitting state chief or a former state chief to take her or his knowledge about state to local government and bring it to Massachusetts, including people who are already in the state who are former state chiefs or secretaries. But third, this is also an opportunity for all parties, local, state, and the philanthropic community to say that if we want to reimagine what Boston public schools can look like post-pandemic with a whole lot of money from CARES, what could we do? So I want to wish her well, but also want to watch this with great interest. Can I jump on that real quick? Absolutely. So a couple quick things. I absolutely agree with point three that this is that like, I just reject the entire discussion about return to normalcy, especially in any quasi-large or very large urban school district, given the amount of money that is in play from CARES and other COVID release packages. And knowing that without a pandemic, in this nation, only 20% of Black fourth graders are reading at or above proficient on the NAEP, right? So I absolutely think this is the moment to fledge the school system of the future, and I hope whoever the next person is there thinks that too. Just one other, one and a half interesting things though. So like you said, you know, Jersey City 
Patterson, Camden at one point, Newark, obviously, and we're all, you know, all places with state takeover, but to varying degrees of efficacy. But really, like, I can remember when Bill de Blasio took over New York after what many would describe as a stellar tenure and partnership between Joel Klein and Mike Bloomberg. And I went up to Albany and some state senator who I could tell disliked everything about me wanted to know why I was there because everybody knew that the mayor, Bill de Blasio, was not a friend to charters or, or anything worthwhile, really. And I, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, I was like, you know, mayoral control is the worst form of governance except for all the other ones. <laughs> and I do think that, like, <laughs> that one of the things that people need to continue to analyze is that, like, mayoral control is as good or as bad as the mayor, right? So that's sort of like an, an, an important thing. But regardless of who's in control, families need leverage. I think even in charter world, you're seeing sort of like some people that are luminaries of the past two decades go on and do other things, right? And they leave huge vacuums in institutions that we knew and understood and that families felt pretty familiar with, and now they don't know. And so it's like, what optionality do we give them? If there's a smooth transition in Boston, like more power to them. If it turns into a political feeding fest, which I suppose is also possible, I hope there's some options on the table for families so they can do what's right for them. And so glad to hear you talk about families because you and I have been involved in this work, you know, over two decades at different levels. And we really know that families really could care less about the political fighting. They could care less who's on the right and the left That's right. as much as That's to give right. their children opportunities to make decisions for themselves about what's left, right, and the middle. And the pandemic exposed what we've seen for years, just not only issues of poverty, but true beliefs in some adults' worldview that these kids just can't learn. And so this is really an opportunity for Boston to really be a light on the shining hill. And since you mentioned Churchill, I'm going to mention another philosopher. Mike Tyson once says, everyone has a plan until you get hit in the mouth. And COVID hit all of us in the mouth, and we thought we had a plan. Well, for the first time in decades, money won't be the reason. We can't move with some very interesting ideas. It's really going to be political will, imagination, and the ability to have the courage to think unconventionally. Hopefully, we'll, we'll see that in Boston. Yep. And Darrell, next, we're going to have an opportunity to speak to our guest of the week, Virginia Walden Ford, the one who we learn more about in a movie called Miss Virginia. We know her well, but I look forward to the rest of our listeners getting to know her even better. We'll be back. So I'm delighted to introduce Virginia Walden Ford. I'm going to read her bio, but I should probably just call her like mother of modern school choice advocacy because I, I know that she's been like a mom to me and I consider her one of my four stars and one of the people I've always looked up to and learned from. And so it's a personal and professional privilege to have you on today. Oh, Virginia, you, it's all true. I know how to gas people up too, but this is all true. So Virginia is one of America's leading advocates for parent empowerment. As a student, a mother, an advocate, and a grandmother, she spent her lifetime fighting to create new educational opportunities for children and families. 
a native of Little Rock, Arkansas, and the daughter of two public school educators. Virginia and her twin sister, Harrietta, were among the first 130 students chosen to desegregate Little Rock's high school in the mid-1960s. As a single mother, Virginia helped mobilize thousands of parents in support of school choice, which culminated in congressional passage of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program in 2004 and its reauthorization in 2009. In 2008, the Alliance for School Choice honored her with the John T. Walton Champions for Choice Award in recognition of her achievements. She is the author of the books, Voices, Choices, and Second Chances, and School Choice, A Legacy to Keep. Virginia's work inspired the 2019 eponymous film, Miss Virginia, which is now available to view on over 1,000 platforms, including Apple TV, Amazon Prime Video, and Netflix, and it is a very good movie. Again, Virginia, I am delighted to have a chance to talk to you today. Thank you, Darrell. I am delighted to be here. You and Gerard, of course, are two of my favorite people in the world, so this was easy. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't, I was going to say, don't let that get out, but it's on the podcast now, so maybe it's out. So you've lived, I mean, I, I'm understating it. You've lived a remarkable and heroic life. Advocates, families, politicians, whatever, all agree on this. From growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and desegregating the high schools there, to leading school choice efforts in Washington, D.C., and inspiring people across the country. Would you share with our listeners what it was like to be in Little Rock in the mid-1960s? and the lessons you carry forward with you in your school choice advocacy. I have the Little Rock Nine uh, desegregated Central in 1957, but between that time and when I went into school, black kids went back to black schools and the schools did not continue a strong desegregation process. So in, when I got ready to go in high school in the 60s, we were told that we were gonna be the group. We were gonna take the big group of kids. And I didn't want to go. I, no, I don't want to go. I want to go to the Blau Black High School, follow my older sister. But my dad said to me, and I was 14, he said, you have a responsibility to go to Central, to do well, to take advantage of everything that school has to offer you. And you know why, little girl? He said, because you have two younger siblings, and how are they going to look at you if you don't have the courage to do this? And even at 14, that just stayed with me. It stays with me today. And even though it was tough, and there were only about 300 Black kids in the school that had over 2,000 students, and sometimes we went visible, and sometimes we had to really struggle to get our voices heard. I'd always remember I had two little sisters at home, and I had to do well. So it sets the tone, if you will, of my entire life. My parents were teachers. My father was the first black assistant superintendent of the Little Rock School District for personnel. My mother was one of four teachers that integrated white schools here in Little Rock. So I had these wonderful role models that I just looked up to. And it made us strong. They always told us that our lives should be one of service, that no matter what we do in our lives, always serve your community. And that's what we did. But it, it was rough. I mean, we'd go to school. It was clear people didn't want us there sometimes. Teachers wouldn't call on us. The Black students would meet 
at the end of the day to walk home together so we wouldn't get bullied. It was hard. It was hard. But when we graduated from Central, we graduated with such incredible pride. We got through it. We did it. And it really helped us in our choices to go to college. And this group went to college. And many of us, uh, I wasn't first generation, but many of my classmates were first generation college bound. So it was tough, but made me strong. It did. Obviously, as a student, like you just talked about, a mom, a grandmother, you have been a champion for greater educational opportunity. Can you talk specifically about being a mother and advocating for your own children in D.C. and the barriers you faced there as you were trying to lead and sort of like organize parents in favor of school choice in the district? I can. I have three children, Michael, Maisha, and William. My two older kids were really academically, well, every parent says this, but academically gifted. And they were easy. As long as I was, they knew I was by their side, then they did their homework and they worked hard and they made their way. They found role models. They found, we found programs that would benefit them, but it was still hard, but it was, it could be done. By the time my youngest child went into middle school, I started seeing changes in the traditional public school system and how they were receiving kids and how kids were doing. I lived in a community that was tough. It was pretty tough. A lot of drug problems, a lot of crime, you know, and additionally, there were just numbers and numbers of single mothers that were trying to make it. And even though we try to help each other, it was hard. But I knew as I watched my youngest child hit the streets and I watched the drug dealers court him and buy him things, I knew that something needed to be done. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to do it. But I did know that I wasn't going to allow my 13, 14 year old child to be pulled into the streets of the district and become just another black boy that was a statistic, either jail or dead or strung out or whatever. And it was really interesting because I was the behind the scenes mother Durrell. And I know people always say, yeah, right. But I was, I was not a speaker. I was not that person that was the president of the anything. I would take the cupcakes up there. I would have a little party for the kids, but I wasn't aggressive. I was a bit of an introvert. But all that said, when I looked at my youngest child and I saw him not able to survive in what the society was offering him at that time, I had to learn how to use my voice. And it was terrifying for me to stand in front of people. And at that point, we started going to PTA means and education, any kind of education meeting we started attending. And I had to say something because we were all sitting there watching our kids fail. And that's kind of how I got into it. Talking to other parents in the neighborhood, we all agreed that we had to fight for our kids. And I don't know, somehow I got elected leader. I haven't figured that one out yet. But you speak on our behalf and we'll be there with you. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you, Virginia. And but we need you to be the person that speaks. And I had to learn how to do it. I had to learn how to open my mouth and tell people how I felt. 
And then as we began to talk to people and talk to local elected officials who most of the time dismissed us, or we talked to educators who didn't want to deal with us, or we talked to talk to people in the communities who said, oh, y'all will do this for a while and then you'll back off. Who cares what happened to these kids? After we saw all of that happen, it became clearer that we had to fight. And uh, we had to be soldiers. And I used to tell the parents all the time, don't get confused. We are soldiers. And the more we talked and the more we visited with people and and the more often the people dismissed us, the stronger we got, the tougher we got. And by the time we started talking to members of Congress, we would talk. We thought we knew something. And we would <laughs> add to it. We knew a little bit. And we keep adding people to it. And, and at one point, we were out in the communities, and parents, primarily low-income Black and Hispanic parents, would say, here comes the education lady. And I, and I loved that. No, I did. I thought, that's great, because they're recognizing me as somebody that they could work with. You know, I mean, too many people go into poor communities and say, we want to help y'all. And then they never come back. Or they want too much from them. I just wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and help their children. And so we built our army. We did. Door by door. House by house, barbershop by barbershop, community center by community center, we built an army. So you, you one more from me, and then I'm going I'm to let Gerard chime in. And I know he's going to say he likes you as much as I do, but he'll be lying because he can't. Um, so I love you, Gerard. <laughs> you've received national attention for being among the prime movers for the DC Voucher Program. Would you discuss the steps it took to mobilize D.C. parents, working with policymakers, politicians, and successfully getting congressional support? I know it's a little bit of what you just talked about, but can you, like, dig in a tiny bit yeah. more for, for the listeners? Yeah. I will, Gerard. One of the things about it is once we got started and once we built this group of people, we didn't know where to go with us. And so at that point, we found out that there were national groups, ASC, in choice Freeman Foundation or or and others who were looking for parents they could stand with. They had wonderful ideas and wonderful hopes and dreams. They were talking about policy and all this stuff. But what they didn't have was the parent people that were being the beneficiaries of anything they were trying to that would be the beneficiaries. And so I believe in coalitions. I really do. Don't know where it came from, but I do. I believe that you've got to align yourself with people that believe as you do. And so we did. We talked to supporters all over the country, actually. D.C. is the fishbowl. So once a group of parents were engaged and involved in getting the word out that this was something they wanted, it was not difficult to talk to people. So we talked to all of those groups and then uh, members of Congress, which is kind of a funny story, how we got started with members of Congress. We got a call from a member of Congress, Jeff Flake, actually, and he called and said, I'm thinking about proposing a scholarship program for D.C. And I said, OK. And he said, I heard that you have a group of parents that understand what this is all about. And I, uh, yeah, he said, you think you can bring five or six or 10 
parents to stand behind me while I made this announcement about this program. And I said, absolutely, hung the phone up and was not sure how we were going to do this, getting people up on Capitol Hill, most of them had never been there before at 9 o'clock in the morning. But we put a call out to the parents we had been working with and then prayed. And in that morning, the next morning at 9 o'clock, there were 100 parents there. And I think it was right at that moment that members of Congress who had some interest in providing a scholarship program or a voucher program for D.C. took us seriously. You know, when 100 parents show up at 9 o'clock in the morning to say, we want something different for our children, we want something better for our children, and this man, who we didn't know, said that he could do this. And at that point, other members of Congress contacted us, but we bombarded the Hill. We put on our little D.C. Parents of School Choice t-shirts, and we went to the side, and we went to the House side, and we made ourselves seen. But I think it was such a collaborative effort, and that made a big difference for us. When you are trying to make a difference in the world or change something or you're on a quest or whatever, when you know that there are people that believe in you, that support you, it really helps move it along. Hey, Virginia, good to hear your voice. Hello, Gerard. How are you? Doing well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, dear. So, Virginia, let's talk about the days you just mentioned. These days, there's a lack of bipartisan consensus on K-12 education policy, while D.C. seems as divided as ever. Could you talk about your experience with D.C. politicians and what school choice advocates need to do today to build on the work you accomplished? We've known each other for a long time. We've been through a lot together. And I know we're talking about one of the first years that we were really fighting hard and really, really involved I had the opportunity to put together a dinner with support from wonderful people and members of Congress to bring, it was 500 parents to a historically black church in D.C. to talk about school choice, to talk about what they needed, what they wanted. And I think that was one of the biggest starts to getting people to begin to believe in us. And there were several members of Congress that spoke. There were several heads of school choice organizations. There were lots of supporters. But the beauty, there were 500 parents and kids, and it was amazing. And so I think those kind of things, when people begin to think to care about them, enough to bring them together and to talk to them with respect and to hear what they have to say, you can build mountains. Absolutely, you can build mountains. Here's a follow-up question. Yes. You've written two books. Talk to us about the process and why you decided to do so. First book, Voices, Choices, and Second Chances, I wrote because I wanted to leave the information for other parents on how we did it. I mean, the fact of the matter is we built an army and we won. But we had to sit down and think about how did we do this. Yeah, we had a lot of wonderful people supporting us, but we realized at that time that there were lots and lots of parents around the country that this seemed too big. It, it seemed too much. And so they weren't going to be willing to step out there and do that. So I wrote the first book, which I love that book. And it's kind of a step-by-step -step how you get started. 
and it's got anecdotes on things that we did. Parents around the country have told me they have so much fun reading that book as they're building their armies. So that was really a great book. But I wanted the world to know how strong those parents were and how hard they fought. And, and that was a way of getting that out because I think it's important for parents to be encouraged, but they also need to know how to do this. Now, the second book, which just came out in 2019, actually after the movie came out, I wrote as a part to the movie. You know, movies are beautiful, and I love this. I'm very proud of Miss Virginia, and so are the parents that I've worked with through the years. It tells a great story of, of parent activists and being courageous, all parents, and which I love. But every time I went out with the movie to speak, somebody would say, and tell us more of what happened, you know, tell us a little bit more. Can you name names? And of course I would say no. But we decided in the process of making a movie actually, that we should write a book about it and Another question that people always ask me is, how did you get into this and, and what gives you your inspiration? And my family gives me my inspiration. My great-grandfather was a slave who bought his family out of slavery into freedom and owned one of the first bakeries owned by a black man in Little Rock, Arkansas. I, you know, I started with this incredible family as many of us have, and I, we've been lucky enough to, to be able to trace our ancestry. So I wanted to write something, and I knew I was getting older, and I didn't know how much longer I was going to be out there fighting for anything. And I wanted to leave something to parents and kids and my kids and my nieces and nephews that told not only a history of family whose whole purpose in life was to serve communities. My great-grandfather started a church in Little Rock that still exists to this day. So I wanted to write that part, which is the legacy part, but I also wanted to tell a little bit more about the fight. And even though I couldn't name everybody that supported us, I was able to name a few people that supported us. And there's this great picture of us, Gerard, going to the Department of Education in the book. And I wanted wanted people to see that. I mean, we were soldiers, were we not? And you and me and Howard and Kevin, I was the only girl, and it's been an amazing journey. So I wrote the second book to recognize the journey and to thank all of those people who have been by my side for 20 years. And you're telling this story during Black History Month and talked about your you know, grandfather being the slave African. School has been so important to us from the beginning. So thank you for telling that. Here's the last question. There is a Virginia and a Virgil in Charlottesville, Virginia, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, in Los Angeles, in Minneapolis. Every community has a Virginia and a Virgil. What do you say yeah. to them? as they think about taking on this challenge for their children, knowing what you know today? I'm so glad you said that, because I say it all the time. I was not uh, the only one doing this. So it, actually, during that time, there were thousands that were around the country that were doing it, that were leading efforts to get people 
to speak up on behalf of their children and to fight for their children. And similarly, nowadays, when I'm out and about and I'm talking to parents and, you know, it's been amazing because during the pandemic, people have called me and written me and found me on Facebook or somehow contacted me. And what I say to them is be strong. Stand strong. Use your voices. Stand up for your children. And I have been so delighted to see so many of them that are doing it virtually, and now many getting out. And so I say, I'll tell those parents, believe that you can do this. Believe. Then stand strong. Use your voice. Speak up. You have every right to speak out on behalf of your children. And the men and women that are out there doing that, parents, aunts, uncles, grandmas, supporters, those are the people that I say, you know, believe. My mantra has always been hope, love, and dignity, always. I have always said that, and that's what I say to people now. Hold your head up. Don't let anybody turn you around. Dr. King used to say that. <laughs> Don't let anybody turn you around. I learned that I can do what I set my heart to do. And nobody could have told me 20 years ago that we would even be having this conversation and that so many incredible things have happened on my life journey. I was sitting on, you know, I'd probably be raising my three kids in D.C. and they'd be okay. They'd be grown now. But I was privileged to fight alongside all the soldiers that have fought with children over the years and continue to fight. That's what I tell them. I, you know, it's funny because I never thought of myself this way, but I've become that old grandma or auntie, you know, that people call and say, can you give me some advice? Can you uplift our group? Can you say something that will spark some energy? And I relish that role. I love it. I mean, I hope that I will continue for as long as I'm able to be that to this parents and kids, you know, because I will never stop as long as I'm able to. So I like taking on the new role as somebody of wisdom. Well, share from your book a passage to share with us the kind of wisdom you're talking about before we head out. I am. Okay, now. I, you, I had to reread the book this morning, and I cried all morning. But this is one thing I want to share. This is from School Choice, A Legacy to Keep. For my own children, I would have done anything to give them opportunities in life, the same opportunities my parents and ancestors had struggled to give our family. When I saw injustice, I fought against it, just like Mama and Daddy had done decades before. When I saw doors closed to me or to others because of our race or income, I joined with other parents to open those doors and encourage children to run through them and seize opportunity. And that is from School Choice Legacy to Keep. Well, you've had a lot of moms and dads mm -hmm. crying at night for excitement because what you've done is to help open up the doors of opportunity in so many cities in addition to D.C., but there are also people who are going to read your books and, and watch Miss Virginia and also cry because they said, well, look, she showed us the way. If she can do it, then we can do it. So on behalf of everyone here at The Learning Curve and all the people who've benefited from your wisdom and your sacrifices, and we have to admit the sacrifices because there's things you sacrifice personally, professionally, and financially that we'll never know about to get us here. So 
we want to thank you for your work and know you always have friends here at the Learning Curve. Oh, thank you all so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Again, two of my favorite people on the planet. And call me anytime, but it has been my privilege to go on this journey. Thank you for having us. Take care. Take care. Well, we're now going to go to our tweet of the week, and it looks like we're staying on the East Coast. So this is from Philadelphia Schools, uh, February 6th. It says that the grads who are in CTE, and that's career technical education, we are offering the opportunity for you to earn an industry-recognized certification that may not have been obtained due to COVID-19 closures. Read more below, and of course, they go into the story. For students in Philadelphia, we've talked about your system a number of times on the show. Karen and I have identified some of the great things that Philadelphia was doing, also some of the challenges. They are giving you an opportunity to focus on CTE, again, career technical education. For thousands of students, this can be an opportunity into middle-class opportunities, and it also will give you an opportunity to make money and to do some things right after high school. So glad to see Philadelphia doing that, and I hope families in the city join that. Next week's guest is Mark Bowerlane from Emory University. He has got a very interesting title. Some would say provocative. The title, The Dumbest Generation. I'll leave it at that. Well, Darrell, as usual, it's always good to break bread with you in different ways. Let us know what we can do here on The Learning Curve to support you, support the organization, and to support the families that you consider to be important. Always, sir. And as always, thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Oh, my God.